We're in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 18. And if you remember from last week, after finishing up in Lystra and Derbe, which was in the region called Galatia, Paul and Silas originally intended to go on into Asia and to preach the gospel there. And there were some interesting things that happened. If you jump back and just look at verse 16, verse 6, as they pass through that Galatian region there, it says that the Holy Spirit forbid them from speaking the word in Asia. It doesn't mean they couldn't cut through. They had to walk through it at some point. But the Holy Spirit just said, I don't want you to preach here. I imagine it must have been a little frustrating for Paul since he loved to preach. He doesn't seem to complain here, but you can imagine, you know, if you went someplace to do, do a job and the Holy Spirit was standing in your way and you didn't know why, but we see that that's what they intended to do was to preach the gospel there in Asia, but the Holy Spirit said, no, not, not this time. We know that the gospel is brought there later. We know that Paul goes there later. So this was a temporary thing. Um, so then they decide to pivot a little bit. They decide to go to the north in a place called Bithynia. But then in verse 7 it says that the Spirit of Jesus prohibit him from doing that as well. So we're wondering, what in the world is going on with that? Um, try to go to Asia, Spirit says no. Try to go to Bithynia, Spirit says no. We're not really told what's going on until we get down into verses 9 and 10 when we learn that God wanted them actually to go to Macedonia. If you look at verses 9 and 10, it simply says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over here to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately he saw, or we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so what we find is that the reason the Lord didn't want him to go to Asia, the reason the Lord didn't want him to go to Bithynia, was because he wanted him to go to Macedonia instead and preach the gospel. So Paul and Silas do exactly that. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. We're going to read through the first few verses here. If you start with me in verse 11, it says, So putting out to sea from Troas... We ran a straight course to Samthrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that we would, there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So Paul and Silas head out for Macedonia. There's a sense, if you notice here, of urgency. It's reflected in a couple of the words that Luke uses here. Notice he says immediately in verse 10. It means they took off right away. They didn't delay. And it says that we ran a straight course, which means we went right there. We didn't get distracted. There weren't any stopovers. And so they immediately begin to head out to Macedonia. So there's an urgency about what's going on. You can imagine why. You know, you've made these attempts to go places, and then the Holy Spirit makes it really clear, no, no, we need to have you go down here at Macedonia. And so, knowing Paul and his eagerness to preach the gospel anywhere, basically jumps on that immediately. There's this urgency about it. It says that they arrive in a place called Philippi. Luke refers to it as a leading city of Macedonia, and also a Roman colony. Both of these are important. We'll do a little bit of background here for you. Philippi wasn't the largest city, or even the capital of Macedonia, but it was what Luke refers to here as a leading or an important city in this area, primarily on two fronts. It was an agricultural capital of sorts. It was extremely important agriculturally for that region because it sat on this real fertile plain at the base of some mountains. And so it was a great place to grow crops and to provide the region 
with that. So it was important agriculturally, but it was also rich in precious metals, specifically gold, silver, and copper, filled with mines. Both of those made Philippi a fairly wealthy city. So it was important from that standpoint. It was an economic hub. Think about it. In many respects, and I don't mean to disparage any of the surrounding communities, but you know, you go to some places in Ohio and they're very repressed. You go down to the Appalachian area, right? Um, very difficult. Not many resources. A lot of, a lot of poor. You go there are some cities north of us that are very similar circumstances. But you come to Columbus, and in our case, Columbus happens to be the biggest city, but even if it wasn't, it's still financial capital. It still provides a tremendous amount of resources and jobs and everything else. And so we might think of Philippi in that way. It was an incredibly important and a very strategic city for Paul to actually visit. If he wanted to reach Macedonia, it makes sense that he would go to Philippi because of the resources that are provided there. Now he also says here, Luke does, that it was a Roman colony, which means that it had all the rights and privileges of a Roman city, but they didn't pay taxes or tribute to Rome. They got to keep a lot of their money. Oftentimes, as Rome would sort of conquer a city, they would repress that city. They'd have to provide taxes and tribute. You remember here with our own founding how we felt about the king back in England. You know, being taxed heavily, it hurt us economically. And finally, enough of our settlers and Americans had enough of that and said, if we're to thrive, we can't be sending everything overseas. We, we can't work under those conditions especially since there was no representation. You remember the phrase taxation without representation? Well, because this was a Roman colony without some of those Roman restrictions, it allowed them to thrive. They also had their own autonomous government. They were self-governed, self-ruled. Now, as Americans, we understand the advantages of that. And so this was a very important, very strategic city. All of this made Philippi the perfect city for Paul to start his work in Macedonia. Now, one of the things that we'll, we won't so much cover it today, but in fact, I was just, I'm studying ahead. I'm about six weeks ahead of my study here. Um, when Paul, when Silas and Timothy come back and meet Paul at one point, they bring a gift from the Philippians. We know in the rest of the scriptures that the Philippians, on multiple occasions, sent money to help meet some of Paul's needs. I believe that was part of God's plan here. Because not every part of the world at this time was as financially stable as Philippi. In fact, Jerusalem, they were struggling tremendously. If you remember, Paul took gifts and offerings, partly from the Macedonian churches, but other churches as well, back to Jerusalem to help the saints who were struggling there. And so this is a very strategic place for Paul to start and ultimately later on continues to bless Paul financially by helping him with some of his needs. So it says that they're there for a few days, but then when the Sabbath comes, they actually head down, it says, to the river outside the gate of the city because they were looking for an opportunity, as we know, to talk to people about Jesus. That's ultimately why they're there. Remember the vision, come, the Macedonian man waving him on, come. Tell us about Christ. Now, more often than not, Paul's pattern was what? He would go to the synagogues, right? That's where he would start. Well, there's no synagogue in Philippi. In order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least ten Jewish men to make a synagogue. The fact that Paul doesn't start at the synagogue here suggests that there was no synagogue. 
Archaeologically, we've never found a synagogue in Philippi. So there probably wasn't one there. That might also explain why when they go down to the river, it's all women. And so in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish males. There's no synagogue here. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? They're still looking for Jews primarily because that's where Paul started. Remember, his philosophy was to the Jew first and then the Gentile. That was God's plan. In the Old Testament, what did he do? Establishes his nation with Israel. That will ultimately bless all the nations, including Gentiles. When Jesus came, he said, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul followed that same pattern. And so when he gets into Philippi, he begins to look for Jews that he can share with. There's no synagogues, so he does the next best thing, which is he goes down by the river. Now, why do we suppose he went down by the river? Well, the reason for that is, when there wasn't a synagogue in town, the Jews often met down by bodies of water because their time of worship and instruction in the Word also involved ritualistic cleaning, cleansings. Especially for the women. I won't get too graphic, but as women go through their specific times of the month, Jewish law required cleansings. And so it was very common for especially the women in an area where they did not have a synagogue or other places, to go and find a body of water. And they would go down there and they would spend time in prayer there and sometimes in teaching, but also in cleansing. And so Paul and Silas, knowing this, head down to the water. And what do they find? They find a group of women down there praying. And again, their whole purpose was to be able to talk about Christ. Now Luke doesn't tell us anything about these women but it's reasonable to assume that there were, there were basically a mix of Jewish women and probably some female Gentiles, what we would call proselytites, those who had basically joined the Jewish faith, if you will. We don't know exactly how big this group is. We just know that it's likely a small group of women. And so Paul is down there, Silas is down there with him. And they meet these women down there. So Paul and Barnabas do what we would expect them to do. We're told that they begin to speak with them. Now there's two specific women that we're going to talk about today. And what I'm going to focus on as we do this is, in many respects, the differences between these two women. But then there's also something that they have in common. And I think Luke maybe provides us with... um, a picture of these two women for a reason, because they were so different, but also because they shared a common need. So as they go down there, he basically says, verse 13 again, that on the Sabbath day they went outside the gate to the riverside where they were supposing that they would find a place of prayer, and they sat down and they began speaking to the women who had assembled. The first woman that they come across here, the first one that Luke tells us about, is a woman named Lydia. Let's look at verses... um, 14 and 15 here. It says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have joined, or if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So one of the women that Paul and Silas had the privilege of meeting was this woman named Lydia. Now we're, we're told four things about her here. The first one is her name, which indicates that she's a Gentile. So she's not a Jew. 
She's actually a Gentile. Macedonia was a highly Gentile region, very few Jews in that particular area. It's, we're told the second thing about her. It's, we're told that she was originally from a place named Theatira. Now, some important things about this as well, so we'll do a little bit more background here as well. Theatira was a wealthy city in the northern part of Asia. Isn't that rather interesting? Paul and Silas are forbidden from going into Asia, but the first person they meet in Philippi is from Asia. A little bit of irony there. It's the way God works. So she's originally from the northern part of Asia. Theatira was an extremely important commercial center for Asia. It was a city filled with tradespeople. It included people that worked with wool, linen. They had leather workers there. They had potters, bakers, slave traders, copper and silversmiths. One of the most important things about that region was one of the products that it produced was something called Tyrrhenian dye. It was a bright purple or red dye, which was extremely uncommon. It was where they made purple cloth. Now, the thing about this was that it was extremely expensive and difficult to produce. The reason was the dye came from this particular kind of shellfish that was difficult to harvest and to make. I was actually doing a little bit of digging on this and found some information about it on the Smithsonian Museum website where they talked about the process and how it went about. They'd have to collect thousands and thousands of these shellfish and they would put them in these large vats made of lead and they would boil them for hours, sometimes days. And as they would do that, this white milky substance would come out of those shells and they would scoop all that white milky substance out. And when that substance, that white goopy stuff was exposed to sunlight it would turn bright purple and red now here's the thing it would literally take thousands and thousands of these shellfish to make just a single or maybe two yards of purple fabric can you see why it was maybe so expensive we actually see that in the scriptures at times where some of the rich are referred to as wearing purple It was typically a color that was reserved for the wealthy, especially nobility. So Theatira was known specifically for that purple. In fact, that's where the name um, Tyrian comes from the name of the city. Now, there was another place you could get the color. It was from a particular root, but it was really, really super uncommon. So most of the purple came from these shells and right from this specific region. Now, what's interesting about this is this region, because of things like the purple cloth and and that and all of these other trades, there were a lot of guilds in Theatira as well. You know what a guild is? It's like an association or a group. If you were a mason, you were part of a guild. You know, A lawyer has a guild. You have these associations. We do some similar things here. I wouldn't say they're like um, labor unions. They're more like groups or associations. And so you have lawyers that have associations. You know, I was talking to Dr. Lytle um, a couple of weeks ago, and at one point he was the head of a Christian medical group here in the state of Ohio. So it was something similar to those things. And they had these guilds for almost everything, and they would do things like set prices, they would protect their trade, their secrets, they would train apprentices, and there were dozens of these guilds right there in Theatira, and they would go from that place then out. Well, Lydia was likely a member of one of these guilds, 
And the reason was, she was, we're told right here in the text, that she was, verse 14, a seller of purple fabrics. That's what she did. It may give us a hint into her social status. I mean, think about this. Her target audience would have been the wealthy. That's who she would have sold to. Which means that's who she probably associated with. Due to its cost, the average citizen couldn't wear purple. So she probably didn't target the average consumer. When I was working uh, shortly after seminary, I worked as a service writer for a car dealership in uh, Warsaw, Indiana. And um, we sold just about every, we sold every GM model, make and model you could think of except for Chevys because Explorer Van happened to be in town and they bought all Chevys. So there was a Chevy dealer down the street. All they did was sell Chevys to Explorer. We sold every other GM line, which means we sold Cadillacs. And we sold a lot of Cadillacs. And the average price tag, this is 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, the average price tag on one of our Cadillacs was almost 50 grand. And we had sales reps who focused on those Cadillacs. They sold fleets because we had five orthopedic firms in town. They all did Cadillac fleets, right? There was a very distinct difference between our sales reps that sold Cadillacs and our sales reps that sold everything else. Down to the expensive suits, the expensive lunches, the people that they would hang out with. Why? Clientele is very, very different, you know? And so that's much like we might expect here with Lydia. She was probably fairly well off. In fact, the text tells us, we'll see here in a minute, that, well, we saw it in verse 15, no mention is made of a husband, but she cared for a household. In fact, she actually hosted a church in her home, we're told. And generally, from even what we've seen archaeologically, most of the homes that housed churches in that first century were fairly large homes. And that's the picture that we get here of Lydia, that she was probably fairly well off, hung around with, with nobility or with the wealthy at least, was probably a part of one of these guilds, might have been well respected in the community. That's who this Lydia is. Now, whether she wore purple or not, who knows. But my guess is probably so. Most of our sales reps that sold Cadillacs drove Cadillacs. Because you don't pull up in a Chevy to sell a fleet of Cadillacs to somebody. So that's likely who we have here with Lydia. Now the fourth thing we learn about Lydia is that she was religious as well. The text here tells us, if you look back at verse 15, that she was a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. That's a term that was referred used to refer to Greeks or Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh. They were usually Jewish proselytes, meaning that they were comfortable with the Jews, they adopted Yahweh as their God, probably followed in many respects the law, whether they followed it to the degree that the Jews did is really unclear. But they were comfortable within the Jews. They worshipped God, they, they weren't involved with the pagan worship of the Greek gods, typically. And so we learn all these things about Lydia, about her background, where she was from, and probably who who her clientele were, and um, what kind of social status she might have had. But that she was also a worshiper of God. If you think about this, based on the world's standards, um, she had a lot going for her. Successful businesswoman, catering to the social elite, probably fairly well off herself, 
She had a house, we're told. Looks like she had a family. Maybe we don't know if it was children, but she had a household. She might have cared for an adult and maybe her parents. Maybe she had kids. Maybe she was a widow. We don't know for sure, but she had a household. Likely had servants within that household. She was even a religious woman to boot. She had it all going for her, didn't she? We saw somebody like that in our culture and society. What do we think immediately? Successful, happy, you know, tremendous amount of respect. Look up to him, right? Do you remember what Jesus said about how difficult it is for such people to enter the kingdom of God? I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're in verse 20. We'll read down through verse 26. And Jesus, turning his gauge toward his disciples, began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, and you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn you, or scorn your name as evil, for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way that their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, from there, jump over to Matthew chapter 19. We'll see an example of what Jesus is talking about. Why the woes for the rich and the blessedness for the poor? Jesus understood something about human nature. He understood something about those who are comfortable and well-fed and have no needs and are spoken well of in community and society. The well-off. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. A man, a rich man, actually comes to Jesus. And look at their, their exchange. We'll look at verses 16 through 26. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now we're told in the heading there that this is a rich young ruler. Jesus looks at him and says, verse 17, Why are you asking me what is good? There's only one God who is good, but if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for... He was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus said, as he looked at them, With people it's impossible. But with God all things are possible. What was Jesus' point here? The Bible never condemns wealth or possessions. I mean, we know plenty of people that were made wealthy. I mean, I think about David. 
You know, I mean, think about Solomon. Now his life ended as a train wreck. But the Lord was the one who blessed him with the wealth. Abraham was a wealthy man. We know there are plenty of wealthy Christians in the New Testament because, again, they were the ones providing the place to meet in the homes. We know that the Philippians were fairly well off because they continued to give to Paul. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth or possessions or social status, but it does warn that things like that can be a stumbling block or a hindrance in coming to Christ. Proverbs 11.28, just listen to this. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, Paul gives these instructions to Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with things to enjoy. Fix your hope not on the riches, but on God. James warns the rich for the same reasons. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth. It doesn't say you can't be wealthy, you just can't serve both. Didn't we see this repeatedly with Israel throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges? Every time Israel got fat and happy, every time the Lord blessed them, what did they do? crumbled under the weight of that wealth, began to worship the pagan gods until God had to bring upon them their enemies to teach them a lesson. Then they'd cry out to the Lord because things aren't going well anymore. The Lord sends them a judge to rescue them and begins to bless them as they start to honor and worship and obey Him. They receive His blessings and what do they do? Crumble once again. So think about this for a moment. Knowing what we know of Lydia and the warnings we've just read, what would you expect her response to be? Is she like the rich young ruler? So captivated by her wealth that she doesn't, you know, she just likes hanging out by the river because, you know, some good Christian friends or good Jewish friends. But living life, feeling good, no wants or cares. No struggles. The problem with the rich young ruler wasn't that he was rich. It's that those rich were were captivating his heart. That's why Jesus told him to sell it. It was an obstacle. Another rich man, he might not have told to sell his stuff. If that rich man's obstacle was something else. But this particular rich young ruler, his obstacles were his wealth. They captivated his heart. And that's what kept him from obeying Christ. Which is why the Lord said, you have to remove that obstacle. It wasn't just that it was wealth. That just happens to be his issue. And Jesus knew that it was a big issue, and it's a big issue for a lot of people. Why is it that we have something like, you know, when 9-11 happened, why is it the churches were filled the following Sunday and for many Sundays after that? People are threatened. They're worried. They're concerned. Stock market puked. What do people do? Their hearts have a tendency to turn when they struggle when things are difficult. Why is it so oftentimes we see people who have never prayed a day in their life begin to pray when they face severe difficulty? God knows that about people. And wealth is a big one. 
it can become a real stumbling block. And so what might we expect of, of Lydia? Well, we know what she did. We're told in verse 14 that she was listening. It doesn't just imply she heard it. It actually implies active listening. If you, if you look at the word itself and how the word is used, it implies receiving and understanding something. We've done this with our own kids. You may be listening, but you're not listening. You know, it's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to go process it, think through it. And that's what was happening here. As Paul is teaching, she's processing it. She's listening. She's understanding it. Notice the text says that the Lord opened up her heart. So that she responded. Look back at verse 15a. And when she heard her household, or she and her household were baptized. So she responded to the gospel. It says it's because the Lord opened her heart up. Now, you've heard me say this before. I can't lay out for you and explain exactly how it all works with God's sovereignty and his election and predestination and all of that. We know both are true. The Lord selects and moves and opens eyes and ears for some people. He did that for Lydia, maybe because she's listening and God responds. I don't know, like I said, there's a lot that we don't fully, completely understand about the ways that God works, but he does honor, and we've talked about this before in the book here, that the Lord honors a genuine desire to know him. And that's likely what happened here with Lydia as she's listening. Her ears are burning and she's got a desire to know more. And so the Lord opens up her heart and she ends up responding. And not just her, but her household. And not only that, you notice she does something else here. She immediately opens up her house. In fact, she begs Paul and says, listen to what she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Isn't that an interesting statement? We don't often think of salvation and a decision to follow Christ as being faithful to Him. But that's what it is. We are called on and we are commanded by the Lord to respond in faith and trust Christ for our salvation. It is an act of obedience. In college, when I was presented with the gospel for the very first time, and the Lord opened my heart, convicted it, and I laid up on my bed and stared at the ceiling and prayed, that was an act of obedience. Because the Lord was saying, you need Christ. And that's exactly what she does. And so she looks and she recognizes that. And so she looks at Paul and she says, if you've judged me to be faithful, if I've been faithful now in responding to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Opened up her house. Used the wealth that the Lord had given her to now bless Paul to bless the church. And it was an act of faithfulness and and an act of obedience on her part. Totally the opposite response of the rich young ruler. She's blessed as a result. So her house, we're told this, if you look down at verse 40, it's not part of our passage today, I think it's verse 40. Um, After Paul is sort of released from prison, look at verse 40 of chapter 16. They went out of prison... And they entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Lydia even opened up her house after some of them had been arrested, threatened. She's not afraid of that. 
faithful. And so the first person we see in our text here today is Lydia, particular social status and wealth, and yet the Lord opened her heart. Why? Because she needed the gospel. Luke takes us now to a second young woman, radically different in terms of social status and other things. Look at verse, we're going to read um, verses 16 through 19. There's a second woman here that Paul and Silas encounter. Look at verses 16 through 19. It appeared that as we were going, or it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out and saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. He turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of this prophet was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. I'm just going to go ahead and stop there for right now. The first thing we learn about this young woman is that she was a slave girl. And we know that word is used in a couple of different ways in the scriptures. One is maybe just a simple maidservant. Remember when Peter shows back up at the house and there's the maidservant, the girl that sees him, she closes the door and runs away. She was just a maidservant. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. You might think of her as a butler or a maid or other things like we would think of today. It's her job. But the word was also used to refer to those who were genuinely enslaved. The context here suggests something more degrading than just a simple bondservant. More the idea of being enslaved to something. The second thing we learn about her is that she had a spirit of divination, which means that she was demon-possessed. More literally, it says that she had a spirit of python, a snake. Basically, this is a reference to the serpent that guarded something called the Oracle of Delphi. The Oracle of Delphi was a female priestess, a fortune teller who practiced divination out of one of, tem- or out of, one of Apollo's temples. The temple happened to be actually on the temple of a mountain in Greece and people would go to this priestess to have their future told or revealed to them and Python was the snake that protected that temple and so anybody like this young lady who were diviners who would fortune tell were possessed by a demon they refer to it here again as a spirit of Python That was this young woman. Not only a slave, but she's now a slave to this demon. Another thing we learn about this woman is that because of that, she's being taken advantage of. Her unfortunate situation becomes a line of profit for some others. They're more than willing to abuse her and take advantage of her unfortunate situation for their own benefit. It's unlikely that this was favorable employment for her. Likely a form of abuse. In fact, look at what happens in verse 19. When this woman is healed of this, look at how her masters respond. 
Master saw that their hope of profit was gone. That was their concern. Huh, I'm not going to make any money now. And they're so angry about it that they arrest Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace. And we see in verses 20 and following that they make a big deal out of this. They're all upset because now their money machine, this young lady, is taken away from them. Does that sound like anything today? Think about the human trafficking that we see today. Where these... How do I say this? Scum of the earth. Take these young women. Enslave them, abuse them, use them for their own profit. That's what we see going on here. We see how different she was from Lydia. So she's being used by her masters. You know what else? Look at verses 17 and 18 again. She wasn't just being used by her masters, but she's being used by the enemy. 17 and 18, just read those again. Following after Paul and us, she was crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this over and over and over. Now what's interesting about this, at first glance it looks like she's saying a good thing, doesn't it? In fact, many argue she was. And they look at places like Luke chapter 4, when a demon-possessed man cried out, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. They were speaking truth. In Luke uh, chapter 8, a man possessed by a legion of demons, you remember him, shouted, What do I have to do with you, Son of the Most High God? I beg you not to torment me. He was speaking truth. And so some have said, that's what she was doing here. But the problem I have with that is, why is Paul so annoyed with her? If that were the case, let her speak. A few reasons. Um, varying opinions and interpretations of what's going on here. But I'm struck by the fact that Paul was really annoyed by her and wanted to put an end to it. Some people believe that because Philippi was steeped in this Greco-Roman mythology with all the different gods, they were, remember, a very polytheistic society, so many different gods. So some believe that her words would have been understood by the crowds and others around, that this was one god of many. In fact, this phrase, the highest, was used of Zeus. And so some believe that this phrase, the Most High God, might have been understood by people that could have heard this, that she was simply referring to Paul's God as being one of many Greek gods, maybe even Zeus. And that's possible here. They might have understood it that way. Um, But there's something else too, and it's not quite captured in the English here. You may have a little note in your Bible that when she says that they are proclaiming to you the way of the Lord, you might have a little symbol there in some of your Bibles by the word the. And it's because what she actually says is not the way of salvation, but a way of salvation. He's proclaiming to you one way to salvation. One of many ways of salvation. That's deceptive. You know, it's much like Islam today. Jesus was a great prophet, but... Or what about people that say, oh, there's many ways 
to God. Think about what came out recently with some of the studies done by Barna and others, a, a Christian university in Arizona, that claim that 30 to 40% of American evangelical professing born-again Christians say there's more than one way to heaven. Jesus is a way, is what they're saying, but not the way. And so some interpret her words here, that's what was happening, that she's being deceptive, that this demon is sort of acknowledging that Paul is preaching about a God, maybe even a highest God, maybe like a Zeus, but what he's really doing is he's preaching just one way. So that's a possibility. I think there might be a simpler explanation. Now this is just me. This is going to be my opinion. So put a little star by it if you're taking notes. The main audience were Jews. This, remember, this is a group of women, Jews, praying. They likely would have understood God the Most High as being Yahweh. That's likely what they would have understood. The audience at this point isn't primarily Greeks. So I don't know why they would assume what some of these professional scholars say they might have assumed. The Jews would have understood Most High God. In fact, we actually quoted from Luke chapter 8 where the demon said, Son of the Most High God. And in that context, they would have understood Yahweh. So I think that's probably what would have happened here. I'm going to simply propose this. Paul was probably simply annoyed at the fact that this woman corrupted by this demon, was interrupting the time of teaching through the outbursts, which was tremendous distraction. You know, I love the fact that people don't mind at times making comments or asking questions. But I could tell you if it was happening constantly, I'd be annoyed. Why? Because I believe that the Lord wants us to spend time in the Word teaching, listening, growing, And if somebody here was constantly interrupting, even if it was, listen to Mike, listen to what he's preaching. If they were constantly doing that over, it's a distraction. And sometimes that's exactly what the enemy does. He's going to distract with the truth sometimes even. People get annoyed by that. And what happens? They're focused. These people are all looking at the woman. They're not listening to Paul anymore. Of course he's going to be annoyed. In some respects, it may have also been the fact that he's like, I don't need you demons to talk about Jesus. I got that covered. Ever wonder why Jesus told these demons? Shut up. He didn't need the demons serving as his witness. Just for the same reason that I don't need some unsaved individual taking over the pulpit here, even if he's going to tell you about Jesus. And so I think the answer is probably simpler. I think Paul's looking at this going, this is the distraction. We don't need these demons, or this demon in this case. I got this covered. Plus, he's probably also annoyed at the fact that he's looking at this woman being abused by this demon, being abused by her owners, if you will, And Paul, being the compassionate, loving, God-honoring servant of Christ, is annoyed. How could he not be? He's had compassion on others when he comes across a lame man. He was annoyed. And so what does he do? He calls the demon out, tells the demon to leave, and she's set free. I think it's just that simple. 
Maybe the scholars are right and I'm wrong. But either way, whether what they say is true or what I've just shared with you, either way, regardless of the interpretation that you accept on that, Paul rebukes the demons and delivers this young woman from this demonic oppression. Look again at verse 18. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment, right then and there. Now what's interesting, with Lydia, it was really clear that Lydia was saved. Because it says that she responded, the Lord opened her heart, it says that she was baptized in her whole entire household. She opens up her house. So we're, we're absolutely convinced that Lydia was saved. Luke doesn't tell us about this young woman, though, does he? So we're left to speculate. Well, what happened to her? Did she come to Christ? Or did Paul just deliver her from her demons and that was the end of it? I'm going to propose to you that she probably did. And the reason for that is just the evidence that we see from other people that were freed and healed of demons and their response if we would expect almost anybody to come to Christ. Why not those who suffered under demonic oppression and when they're released of that demonic oppression recognize what Christ has just done for them? And we see that in the scriptures. Turn to Mark chapter 5, verse 18. Mark chapter 5, verse 18. It's the end of a passage. You can read chapter 5 if you want, but... This was a demon act, somebody who was demon-possessed that Jesus healed. You get down into verse 18 and it says this. In fact, some of the people were so freaked out by what Jesus had done, they were begging him to leave the region. Remember that? Well, there was the guy who was actually healed himself has a very different response than the people around him. They all are begging Jesus to leave. This dude's begging Jesus to go along with him. Or to be able to go along with him. It says in verse 18, As he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been demon-possessed, was imploring him that he might accompany him. In other words, let me go with you, Jesus. He didn't let him, though. He said, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Look at what the man does. And he went away and he began to proclaim in um, in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. That was the response of the guy who was released of a demon. There's another passage, Luke chapter 8. Look at that with me. Luke chapter 8. Look at verse 1 with me. This actually is rather interesting. Soon afterwards, he, Jesus, going around from city to city and village to another, he was proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, The twelve were with him, but also somebody else was with them. Look at this. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were continuing in their support out of their private means. What Luke tells us here is that there were a group of women who had been healed of demons who followed Jesus, were using their finances to now help support. I'm going to propose that this young slave girl here probably responded the same way, and Luke doesn't even need to tell us that, because it should be almost expected. 
speculation on my part. But likely that's what happened. We don't know her name. But in all likelihood, she ends up at Lydia's house as part of the church. Again, speculation on my part, but based on what I see, others responding, to whom great mercy is shown, great love results. I think we probably have some in our own church here that can speak to that. Who love the Lord because of what He's done and sort of fixing their lives, rescuing them from whatever. So I'm going to go with that myself. I think she was saved. I think Luke includes her here for that reason as well. Let me go ahead and wrap this up. A couple of takeaways. The first takeaway for me is the urgency with which Paul and Silas respond. Uh, you know, it's they had their own mission. They had their own plans. Paul was a planner, and yet they decided to go here, and the Lord says no. They decided to go here, and the Lord says no. And the minute the Lord says, go to Macedonia instead, what are we told? They made a straight course. They didn't wait. They just took right off. They didn't get discouraged because the Lord didn't say, go here. Well, I wanted to go there, Lord. No, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And so they did. Paul says that they had concluded that the Lord told them to preach the gospel in Macedonia, so immediately they packed up their bags and they took off and made a straight course. I think about just a couple of times in my own life where the Lord burdened me to do something and end up doing it. And the Lord used it. I think about the time I wrote my grandmother a letter. I remember my grandmother was on her deathbed in many respects. We didn't know how long she might have had. But I remember trying to leave for seminary and, and go to class and just feeling this intense, overwhelming urging. Write her a letter. Share the gospel with her. And I remember kind of leaving, going out of the car and turning the car on and just couldn't pull out of the drive. Because I just, and I don't, I, I don't usually sense the Spirit working that way in me. Meaning, I know there are times where you kind of say, I think the Spirit's telling me this, but this was one where I, I just finally turned the engine off, I prayed and said, okay, Lord, I get it, I get it. So I went back in the house, and I wrote her a letter, and I sent her a letter. My, my uh, aunt had to read it to her, but she was able to read it to her shortly before she died, and I don't know where my what happened with my grandmother, but she made some comments to my aunt about remembering from what she had been raised in in the Baptist church when she was a little girl, how much of my letter had reminded her of that. Out of a two-week period, it was the only day that she was cognitive, lucid. happened to be the day that my aunt was able to read the letter to her. I remember writing my dad a letter to encourage him. The one thing, I was convinced my dad was saved, but he really struggled with the concept of eternal security. He was raised Catholic, and even if you're saved in the Catholic faith, oftentimes there's that temptation to, to, to wonder, you know, because they don't preach so much the concept of eternal security. It's many feel they could lose their salvation. I struggled with that for the first two years of my Christian life. I kept thinking I could lose my salvation. And so I just felt compelled that the Spirit, and so I happened to preach a message one time that focused specifically on that, and I could not get it out of my head for the next couple of days. You need to write Dad. And so I did. That's one of the reasons why the priest then asked me to preach my dad's funeral. Gave me full reign to do whatever I wanted. Preach the gospel at my dad's funeral. Because my dad shared the letter with the priest. 
Do we respond that way when we sense the Spirit telling us to do something, or do we wait? Do we hesitate? Or do we just do it? Second takeaway, they didn't wait for the women to come to them. Did you notice that? There's no synagogue there. They went looking for these women. I wonder sometimes um, how often we go looking for opportunities to share our faith. I think most of us in this room probably are more than willing when it's dropped in our lap. But do we go looking for those opportunities? I specifically pray for a handful of people that I work with, asking the Lord to give me opportunity. I had a situation yesterday where I've got a little lawn edger and part of it broke and I was looking for a guy that could do some welding. And so I just posted something on our Facebook page for the neighborhood and um, a mom responded, hey, my son does this as a hobby, so give him a call. I called him and he was like, yeah, I'll meet you right over in there. And so I drove over and you know, one of the first things he asked is, what do you do for a living? And I mentioned to him, made sure, oh, I'm an IT guy, but I also pastor a church. Oh, what do, you, what do you do for a church? You know, And I found out that his parents go to a Grace Brethren church. Doesn't sound like he's saved. Doesn't sound like he knows the Lord. Well, so I've been praying now. Lord, okay, that gives me an opening. Maybe I can talk with him when I go pick the equipment up. Give me an opportunity to do that. Because I know I need to be more conscious about looking for those opportunities. So I've got a handful of guys that I'm praying for at work that God will open up the doors. I've got one that said we can go to lunch someday. We should be looking for opportunities. The third takeaway, and I'll wrap up with this because I know it's been a little long this morning. The third and final takeaway, and I think it's probably the most important, is that no matter who somebody is, no matter their position in life, their station in life, whether they're rich or poor, they all share one thing in common. Lydia and this little slave girl couldn't have been more different, but they shared one thing in common. They both needed Christ. We sometimes forget that. You know, we oftentimes think that the needy and the lonely and the poor and the hurting, those are the people. You know what? Even the people that don't know they're lost, even the people that don't have a care in this world, that's the thing that unites all of humanity. We all need Christ. And the reality of it is, The gospel saves everybody. If they're willing to listen. If they're willing to respond. It's a pretty amazing thing about the gospel. It's an amazing... Like I said, it's the thing that unifies us all. We're all sinners. We all need the gospel. No matter who we are.